Blog Talk Radio. of revolutionary voodoo, New Orleans voodoo, secrets and recipes, all is truly and indeed a blessing. If you can just see beyond the veil, come on in, come on in, come on in. It is high noon, U.S. Central Standard Time. Come on in for revolutionary voodoo, New Orleans voodoo, secrets and recipes. All is the Greetings, greetings, congratulations, blog, talk, radio, come on in. Welcome, welcome, YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, Earthcam, come on in, come on in, one and all, come on in. I certainly appreciate my international listenership. Come on in, come on in, all the blessings, greetings, and salutations. Yes, Come back home to Africa. Come back home to 
with yours, beloved. We interrupt you regularly to get to streaming for another edition of the Power of Us. Blog Talk Radio International Listenership, as well as those who are viewing and listening to me now, even though I'm behind an avatar, I certainly do appreciate your time your attention, your patience to this momentarily, daily, spiritual experience at high noon, U.S. Central Standard Time for the Power Lunch. I'm certainly grateful for you and yours and your presence. My listening and call-in number is area code. 515, new call-in number, new listenership number, 515-605-9718. I'm sorry, 515-605-9718 during my live airing broadcast only. Meet me at the crossroads now, if you will. Meet me at this spiritually created sacred space that we share and meet me at the crossroads. Eshu Alebuana Kosi Were, Awu Onlo Uto Ne Iwo, Ada Afanbo Osi, Obatalami Itani Abo, Anilu Abani Shu. Eshu is the respected elder who flogs, confronts, uncovers fools. That one versed in mysteries uses truth to own you. He causes scatter to feed poverty. Oh, Batalat shakes rascals to have sacrifice. The owner of warnings is the one who is Eshu. Aboru, Aboye, Aboshishe, Ashe, may our Ebo reach a rune. May our Ebo be accepted. May our Ebo allow what we desire to come to pass. And so we say, Ashe. Divine, all blessed greetings and salutations, one and all. You are sitting now live with the Divine Prince, Pan-African spiritualist, practitioner, author, and advisor, Elagun Oloye Hudu Obeya Bokor, sharing with you in all things spiritual, mystical, metaphysical, cosmic, Evolutionary, revolutionary, healing, and holistic, universal from a Pan-African spiritualist who do obey a life path and journey. Understanding that all is truly and indeed a blessing. If you can just see beyond the veils, for it is all just an illusion. It's all just an illusion and a test and one of the greatest divine mysteries of this life cycle. This is my constant prayer, my mantra, my affirmation, reverberation. It is my reiteration and my ever-living reality. It is crucial to the very foundation of my inner standing 
my teaching, my walk, my works along this divine, all-blessed life path and journey. It is how I, the Divine Prince, make sense out of all that we're challenged with here in our daily existence on Mother Father Earth. And it is my personal place of power and understanding, the place from where I begin, the place from where I realize and crystallize all my endeavors, understanding that I and I alone create and co-create my divine destiny, and I and I alone create and co-create my divine all-blessed reality. And so it is. Ashe. Asheo. Greetings to you all this Blessed Wednesday, April 27, 2022. I am emanating and vibrating with you and for you now live, virtually, verbally, cosmically, quantum, universally, from this working temple of the House of the Divine Prince. Pi Potions, Hoodoo Central, LLC. In this beloved, legendary, historic, beautiful, some would say most haunted, others would say most enchanted city in America, New Orleans, Louisiana, the land of my ancestors and those who came before me along this spiritualist who do obey a life path and journey, passing down the great obvious stick along with the knowledge of the life-giving herbs, roots, plants, rituals, spirits, minerals, and indeed the legacy, culture, and tradition, the history, and our sacred stories. I am grateful, grateful, and sometimes just a little bit prideful to live and exist and work and, and operate in the ground, sacred ground of our ancestors. I wake up in the morning with Congo Square in my view. I lay down at night with Congo Square and historic Falkborg Treme in my view and on my mind. And it's never lost on me. Not one moment is it lost on me where I am, where I am, and who I am. We stand on the shoulders of mighty ancestors. We stand on the shoulders of mighty ancestors. And no matter where you're living right now, no matter where you're listening from right now, we all have some collection, some connection, some connection, some link back to this great soil that we call Mother Earth, back to this continent, this constantly transforming continent, but certainly this place that science says all humanity had its birth. And certainly we acknowledge that the black woman is God. The black woman is God. Can you hear me? Is this on? The black woman is God indeed. And therefore, we are born God just as we are born human. We're not born adult. We're not born mature. We're not born masters. But certainly we have the potential and the seed from the time that we breathe air, from the time that we step out into this new inter-intradimensional space in this plastic reality here that we call reality. But, but it's certainly plastic and constantly in motion and constantly transforming and constantly being reshaped. And we don't have to be 
victims of that. We can be co-creators in our reality. So I certainly appreciate if you would stop to like, certainly follow, and subscribe on both my blog, talkradio.com, and particularly blog, talkradio.com. It gives me a global map of where we are all listening from. Blog, talkradio.com, forward slash the hyphen divine hyphen prince, and certainly my YouTube page at youtube.com forward slash voodoo tie. Be like Victor, O-O-D-O-O-T-Y-E. And I appreciate you on Twitter, The Divine Prince, on Facebook, Divine Prince, Ty Emeka, on Instagram, Divine Prince, Ty Emeka, and on TikTok, The Divine Prince. I am always, always in motion. Uh, Even when I should be sleeping, I should be in motion. (laughs) Um, My mother's a witness to that. My my sister Wapani's a witness to that. Um, When I should be resting, when I should be eating, um, I'm in motion. And certainly um, another synonym for motion is is ministry. Uh, Whether it's in my personal realm of experience, or or in that which I'm absolutely reaching out hands-on at the grassroots level. Certainly love the avatar, uh, Greg Burns. Is that really you? Uh, That's great. Um, Certainly always looking. Greetings, J.P. Tarot. Come on in, beloved. Yes, J.P. Tarot. Greetings, come on in. We certainly appreciate your appreciation and time and support of the show. Leanne Richard, greetings, beloved. Happy halfway to Halloween. Yes, indeed. Alexis Williams, greetings, beloved. Love it when my godchildren and my initiates come on into the room. Come on into the room. We certainly do appreciate you and yours. And Imani Sankofa, yes. Been enjoying the ride for a while. Sacred love lessons. Peace and blessings to you and yours. And greetings, Shamathia. Excuse me. Blessed, brilliant, divine, all blessed, uh, Baba. <laughs> thank you, thank you I, to you and yours. I certainly appreciate you. I am. Um, I say, inner standing. You know, not in opposition to understanding. And certainly, there's some you know cultural connection there to to my past life uh, as a bedreaded you know, Rasta and the usage of the language and the meaning behind the language. Uh, Indeed, they say inner standing or, you know, overstanding, forgive me, overstanding as opposed to understanding. And they have their reasons for doing so. Uh, And I appreciate their reasoning, uh, but I certainly appreciate inner standing as a way of, you know, not just fixing our mouths to say something, on the outside, fixing our appearance, fixing our, you know, our look to sort of demonstrate some sense of consciousness or or connectivity to a particular uh, group of people who might possess a particular set of consciousness and and thoughts, but certainly to an active inner, um, uh, inner, uh, acting out 
inner uh, growing into, inner production of what we say we know, what we speak out into the air. And that's certainly being our reality. It's very easy for us to say, you know, good morning, beloved. How you doing? And we all, everything is good. You know, all of the blessings, you know, I, I, I'm blessed. You know, but, but is that really the reality that we are experiencing uh, in our minds, in our hearts, in our spirits at any given moment? And particularly at those crossroads, the weather that I often speak of that we all have to encounter. There's no getting around rain, sleet, snow, earthquakes, hurricanes, tornadoes, depending on where where you live in the world, volcanic activity. Indeed, if you are a uh, human and a participant in, in the earthling experience, you experience weather. And I like weather as a metaphor for our, our, our daily spiritual lives, our inner spiritual lives. And I don't mean just the, the prayers and the affirmation or the scriptures or, or the Quranic verses or, or, or the, whatever you're pulling from. Again, that's outside, what we say, what we speak, what we write, how we put it on, how we paint it on, how we mask it on. But how does it indeed open up from within and, and affect? your inner reality affect what you say at any given moment, affect how you respond at any given moment. And indeed, it feeds the need for a deeper understanding of coin coin story. Uh, and, and for those of you who, who are, well, who's coin coin? Go, go back to the last podcast um, and you'll hear a bit of an introduction to who Marie Therese Matoya is. Therese Coin Coin, born Coin Coin, with no surname. Uh, but it's also come to be known as Marie Therese Deet Coin Coin and Marie Therese Matoya. Uh, I get my Spanish and my French uh, and my English kind of twisted up sometimes. But indeed, that is the gumbo of what New Orleans and Louisiana experience is. Born August 1742, made her transition in 1816. She was a planter, a slave owner, a businesswoman, a colonial Louisiana outpost at the Natchitoches, how we pronounce Natchitoches, and today it has become Natchitoches Parish. She was born into slavery, and her freedom was purchased in 1778 by Claude Thomas Pierre Matoya, with whom she had a long, what we say, liaison, and 10 children. She and her descendants established the historical community of Isle Breville of Creole of Color, the Isle Breville of Creoles of color along the Cane River, including what is said to be the first church founded by free people of color for their own use, St. Augustine Parish, Al Breville Church, Natchez, Louisiana. The church included a notable site on the Louisiana African American Heritage Trail. The family was enslaved by the Louisiana French Natchez Post's founder, 
and Commandant Chavalier Louis Jean Chirot de Saint Denis. She was born as Coin Coin in 1742 in Natchez, later known as Natchez Parish. Her parents were Francois and Marie Francois. She was the fourth of 11 children. As children, Coin Coin and her sister Marie Louise Deet trained in pharmacology and nursing. I won't say she was a root worker and a practitioner, but she worked in pharmacology, in trained pharmacology and nursing. With these skills, the woman earned a livelihood after gaining her freedom through manumission as adults. Their own nine siblings would remain enslaved at various colonial posts from naturalists to Pensacola, Florida. While still young, Coin Coin had five children. Some records show that Coin Coin's first five children were of full African blood, and others suggest they were partially Native American, fathered by Shata about 1765. Her mistress granted Coin Coin to live with the young French merchant, Claude Thomas Pierre Matoya, Coin Coin had gained the interest of Matoya during his many visits to the St. Denis household. The efforts of a parish priest to break up their union in 1778 by filing charges that threatened her being sold away to New Orleans prompted Matoya to buy and manumit her. Manumit means to gain your freedom and receive freedom paper. Together, they moved from the post to outlying land where their liaison continued until 1788. Now, understand it was illegal for them to marry. So at best, it could be referred to as a liaison, legally, at best for 1788. And as his mixed-race children matured and married, Matoya manumitted the eldest five of the ten children whom he had held in slavery after he purchased Coin Coin and their children. As a free woman, Coin Coin exploited a variety of economic enterprises. She manufactured medicine, planted tobacco, and trapped wild bears and turkeys, which were sent to the local market and shipping peltry and oil along with indigo that she sourced from the bearskin to New Orleans along with her cured tobacco. And she became a landowner, a taxpayer. Um, she clearly owned slaves at some point in an attempt to often um, buy the freedom and, and, and manumit relative members of her of her family. And tradition holds that Coin Coin's African-born parents retain much of their culture, and some evidence supports that. No known documents identified the African birthplace of either parent. Coin Coin and her 
and four of her siblings carried African names as Deets. One African historian proposed in 1970s that the African coin coin, spelled variously in translations from French and Spanish scribes, was the name used for second-born daughters among the Ewe of coastal Togo, who speak the Galetsi dialect. Historians Gary B. and Elizabeth Schoen Mills found evidence that Coin Coin was the second-born daughter in her birth family, and other possible origins of the name Coin Coin, together with the names of her siblings, as discovered by Elizabeth Schoen Mills, are being studied by Africanist Kevin C. McDaniel at the UCL Institute of Archaeology the University College of London. And so it's important, um, not just as, you know, once a slave, uh, now a free woman, uh, but, but certainly a played a principal role in, in sort of the establishment of, of root Creole, what we call Creole culture here in Louisiana. Um, being the product of 11, I believe, and then her having um, 10 children, I believe, herself. Um, and, and then those children sort of dispersing throughout the parish really seeded um, what we came have come to understand as, as Creole, African and, and Creole culture in Louisiana uh, from that time and, and from that perspective. And as a first approximation, it is essential to unravel the complicated and often incompletely known movement of Coin Coin's family from point of enslavement to coastal ports and from there to the different parts of Louisiana. This exercise should include a study of the demography of the trade, despite ongoing critique and revision the regional origins of Matoyas by specific time period and according to age and sex are now known and reasonably certainty with a reasonable certainty the correlation the correlation of these quantifiable data with local political events and economic factors in broad outline is now possible as well the numbers in themselves do not blame or condemn the participants in the slave trade, no matter how they are viewed, large or small. Numbers cannot adequately express the terrible suffering of our people who were caught up in the Middle Passage. What demographic analysis can do, however, is contribute to our knowledge of the regional and ethnic origins of the exported slave population. And this is important in the continued sort of argument and discussion about how much of our culture and from where did we indeed retain in the Americas, and specifically as African Americans, who are often thought by some foolish people to have somehow the, the least connection to the ancestral roots. We, we often seek Jamaica to get our groove back. We often seek Cuba, you know, and, and, and Brazil and other locations to sort of 
gain some reconnection uh, to our ancestors when we indeed hold that connection here. We indeed have a footprint of that connection here. And indeed that encoding, if you will, is imprinted on that Jacob's Ladder, that DNA that exists within our very bloodlines. And, and we now have come to understand and science supports ancestral memory survives in the DNA. Statistical data are therefore useful in determining why, when, how individuals were enslaved and indirectly may assist in revealing what aspects of personal experience were important to slaves prior to coming to Louisiana and therefore our ability to sort of retain that. And, and not just in Congo Square and in Louisiana, but in Mississippi and in Tennessee and in Kentucky and Mississippi and the Carolinas and Georgia and Florida and Texas. And although not all historical events in Africa continue to have meaning to people once they arrived in Louisiana, the reasons for enslavement and deportation almost certainly did. And there are at least two ways of getting at these underlying factors. First, through an understanding of the history of specific regions, states, and places in as much detail as possible. And second, through biographical accounts of individuals such as CoinCoin and a sociological analysis of such accounts. This approach can help in understanding not only where individual slaves came from, and how they were enslaved, but also can assist in analyzing the process by which individuals formed new communities and new identities under slavery and freedom in the Cane River region and subsequently in Louisiana. The first task is the assignment of all historians of Africa and clearly does not only relate to the study of slavery in the, in the slave trade, Indeed, the relative importance of transatlantic slavery is subject to debate in the study of the African past. This agenda of historical reconstruction is now being pursued both in national universities within Africa and among scholars worldwide to an extent that often daunting to specialists and perhaps more so to non-specialists. I might be considered a non-specialist. Some might say I'm a specialist, but I'm certainly a non-degreed specialist. And for scholars of slavery in Louisiana who seldom venture across the Atlantic to the homeland, which I'm certainly one of those, the rapid and voluminous changes in documentation and analysis are a problem. It is hard enough studying abreast of advantages in any area of specialization. And crossing the Atlantic to look closely at African history is a big task. Much like I say crossing the Atlantic to learn Yoruba culture, for an example, language, food, tradition, uh, nuances, taboos, and certainly then Ifa and the dynamics of Ifa and Ifa culture cannot be learned in a month, cannot be learned in a two-week vacation, it certainly cannot be grasped uh, in, in, in two weeks once a year. 
going to Nigeria. Many of the the people that I know um, travel at least four times or more a year uh, and, and still consider themselves students on the journey of, of, of learning and understanding uh, who they are and certainly who we are and how that plays a role in, in, in not just um, sort of their personal reasoning for wanting to adapt the traditions, but making that make sense for a greater community who may not have the passports, the resources um, to make the journey. So it's certainly a big task. But difficulties duly considered, it is fully as important to keep abreast of advantages in Togo history Airway history, Benin history, Nigerian history, um, and certainly European history as it has affected um, our understanding of the experience and certainly our experience today. The proper study of slavery in the Cane River, Louisiana region requires the study of two overlapping diasporas that of the Europeans and that of the Africans, and their interrelationships with their home cultures and societies and how they interacted with each other. Now, unfortunately, but perhaps to be expected, the African dimension has suffered from an inferior status and neglect, while the European background and subsequently the the, uh, uh, Creole background in ongoing history have not so much. The methodology that is required to uncover the active lineages between Togo and Coincoin's family must begin with a comprehensive knowledge of African history. Then the same historical techniques must be applied in reconstructing her past in Cane River. How was her family impacted by being forcibly moved to Louisiana? And how does this compare in the migration of Europeans into the diaspora? It's a question that we continue to ask today in our community, many of us. How do we compare the southern border issue with Mexico and our Honduran cousins, El Salvadorian cousins seeking freedom? How do we compare that? to coin coins experience as an enslaved African and then subsequently being you know, given her manumission and then only slaves and then manumitting them as well. How do we, you know, how do we make that make sense in our, in our heads? And we can compare. And it is a sad comment on the state of slave and Creole studies in the Americas that this common sense is often ignored. Some of the best scholarship makes assumptions about the Africans in Cane River and have practiced an abuse standard historical methodology, including neglecting the central importance of chronology, the examination of change over time, the critique of all available source material, the insistence that latter events and phenomena not be read back into the distant past and other aspects 
of the discipline that are or should be taught in virtually every introductory history course. My introduction, official introduction, I would say, into um, Pan-African culture and history was through my mother, who demanded that we went to the library every, every Saturday, every Saturday. We were taking books back. We were picking books up. And not just to read, but to do to write a book report on it, to do something that was going to involve a, a thesaurus, a dictionary, <laughs> you know, a set of encyclopedias, you know, something. Uh, she demanded that we went to the museum uh, a few times a year, and certainly, you know, during the summer months. She demanded that we saw the opera, the theater, the marionettes, the zoo, you know, uh, plays you know, drum, dramatic reproduction, reproductions, you know, she demanded it. Um, we, we had a, we have a cousin, um, well-known international uh, black uh, artist um, who came and lived with us. And then we practically lived in the uh, National Museum of Art uh, for about a month uh, while he painted and, and drew and, and, and taught and and lectured and, and you know it was quite the experience beyond what we get in the so-called you know certainly the so-called public school structures but even in some cases your uh, parochial and catholic and uh, religious um, structures that tend to limit exposure to culture art music uh, things that certainly round out um, our education and, and then round out our awareness um, of, of our place in the world. And in defiance of these fundamental principles of human scholarship and historical scholarship, studies of coin coin and, and other, other enslaved and then freed Africans are too often imbued with historical generalizations about the nature of her past. Roberto identified the problem as unavoidable. Roboto, R-A-B-O-T-E-A-U. I know sometimes my accent and my dyslexia collide with one another. Roboto identified this problem as unavoidable because of a lack of sources for writing the history of non-literate cultures. And I quote non-literate cultures. For in his study of slave religion, which I find Fascinating, if you haven't explored it, Slave Religion by Roberto. Um, he found that written European sources um, contemporaneous with the slave trade are often marred with ethnocentric biases. But as a genre, they do give a general, if not distorted and fleeting view of some elements of religious belief and practice in West Africa during the centuries of the slave trade. And hence, our view of uh, voodoo demonstration in, in indigenous Africa uh, still remains distorted, along with that chronolog chronological um, attention that I, I referenced, not playing uh, enough of a role in how we perceive not only how we do it here, 
but how it, it's being done there and how it has been done there as Africa has also had to absorb the influence of, of, of Westernization. The UNESCO Slave Route Project, the UNESCO Slave Route Project, has already demonstrated that sources are extensive, though widely scattered. Breakthroughs in technology that allow the scanning of primary documents onto the computer suggest that the problem will soon be an excessive quantity of material from archives that many specialists have never been able to consult. The question of biased sources is a problem common to all historical research, and hence Robitaille's comments on the ethnocentrism of European sources are not unique to the study of the African diaspora. People often ask me, why isn't there a book available? I'm often asked, why don't I write a book specific to, you know, initiation? Uh, certain aspects of initiation, uh, certain aspects of, of the work that we do in, in the course of ancestor work and, and divination. Um, and, and I keep giving you all the same answer. It, it's not being done from our perspective to protect what's sacred and the remaining footprint of what's sacred. And then I add to that that there are those who would not only appropriate, bastardize, misuse, abuse, trample upon what's sacred, um, but would also hurt themselves with it, much like we would, you know, certain chemical formulas, you know, that we could harm ourselves and others with. You know, certain knowledge is only gifted to those who've earned the sort of earned the right to hold that knowledge, to hold uh, that information. So it, it's always been a, a bit of a unique quandary. People with a, a newer, modernized mind think it's just purely about secrecy or control or, or power or wanting to keep, you know, certain people from gaining access to this information. And certainly in the case of the children of the diaspora, we have found that to be, you know, a, a serious consideration, you know, getting into these systems is challenging for us, passport, travel, language, uh, housing when you get there, developing relationships with these communities. Oh, our beloved Gwendolyn Newman Culp is with us. Greetings, beloved. I certainly, I just picked up your book <laughs> and looked at it again like four days ago. Yes, indeed. Come on in, Gwendolyn Newman Culp. Where in the world are you today, beloved? Dee Dee Miller, I certainly appreciate you. Uh, just, honey, just email me, okay? Is it scrolling? Well, it is on my blog talk page, but let me scroll it again uh, for you and yours and those who might be uh, wanting to know. I certainly don't mind assisting you in your endeavors. Um, so just reach out to me using my contact link or my email, houseofthedivineprince.com or divineprince at houseofthedivineprince.com, and I'll be glad to accommodate you. Greetings, Chef Bougie, you and yours. I always have to say you and yours, you and your castle, you and your village. 
because I know not only are you standing on the shoulder of mighty ancestors, but you got generations with you and, and following you. So I, I appreciate you always being present and gifting this information to your household and to your village. To Matthew, you know I love you, beloved. Universe, innerverse. Yes, omniverse. Yes, the song, wisdom, word of the source. It's so endless when you notice it all. It is, beloved. It is like a crystal. <laughs> it is. Thank you so much, Madam Arisha, Eva Arisha, Mojuba Arisha, beloved. Welcome, welcome. We certainly do appreciate you and yours. I love it when my friends are here, my family is here, my blood relatives be here, uh, my cousins be here, my adopted family be here. I'm just grateful for you all and your participation, your love, your support. Tasha, been here since the beginning. She's been watching me grow and evolve and change and elevate and I'm certainly grateful for the beloved Tasha Love, Tasha Love, Tasha Harris. She's also a Harris, which makes her a cousin of mine. So I appreciate all my Harrises, certainly, for being with us. Come on in, you all. I certainly am grateful. Code is 216. We certainly appreciate you. Come on in. New Orleans ain't scary. Now, listen, New Orleans ain't scarier than anywhere else. Come on now, New uh, New York. Chicago, Baltimore, Annapolis, uh, Compton, Miami, you know, Chicago, New Orleans ain't much scarier than anywhere else. You know, you, you have to be in a, on your adulting uh, when you come to the city, but we certainly invite you to come on in. Come on in, take a visit, take a vacation, come for a retreat, come for a spiritual sabbatical, and certainly don't come to the city and not reach out to your beloved Divine Prince at www.houseofthedivineprince.com forward slash contact hyphen us dot html. You can also use my direct email, divineprince at houseofthedivineprince.com. And um, I'll help you get your Airbnb hooked up. Got seven Airbnbs just on my block. And certainly if they are not available, which often is the case, uh, my neighborhood is a great neighborhood. So come on in. Just let me know you're coming. Or just, just let me know you're coming. So in, in the continuation of the conversation, you know, modern accounts of African religion, as I suggest, still suffer, you know, this bias of racism, uh, white supremacy, apartheid prejudice, uh, our own, you know, colorisms and ethnic-isms and, and, and I don't like you-isms and frenemy-isms all keep, you know, the most adequate study of our system um, free, you know, not free of, of, of drama somewhere. So in Robito's words, the issue is the question of the historicity, 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 H-I-S-T-O-R-I-C-I-T-Y, historicity of traditional African cultures. 
uh, can it be assumed, I like to say um, traditionalism uh, and, and sort of a negative or toxic traditionalism. And I think historic, historicity uh, is, is a similar word. Can it, can it be assumed that African cultures and religions have not changed since the close of the Atlantic slave trade a century ago? Come on now. To simply use current ethnological accounts of African religions without taking into account the possibility of change is methodologically questionable. And due to pressures from outside, intensified Islamic and Christian missions, European imperialism, Western technology and education, the growth of African nationalism during the late 19th century and 20th centuries, African traditional religions have changed and continue to do so. And besides external pressures to change, there are also indigenous processes to change within traditional African societies themselves. There are also indigenous processes to change within ATR. So despite Robito's caution, the examination of religion is usually treated in static terms. It is not shown what people believed and how they expressed these beliefs in different time zones, different space and time, and places. Nor has there been any serious attempt to demonstrate how religion was related to ideology and political structure. Instead, the concept of ATR, traditional African religion, has been presented as an unchanging force that was all embraced over vast parts of the continent, which is absolutely incorrect. And observations from a variety of sources are merged to fabricate a common tradition that may or may not have any legitimacy and for want of historical research, the religious histories of Africans from the Bight of Benin, the Bight of Biafra, the Congo, and the interior of Angola are accordingly reduced to the meaningless concept of traditional. Hence, the concept traditional has little functional or analytical use. Even when we say ATR, traditional African religious systems, well, what is that exactly? In place of ethnicity, I like to say family. Whose family are you talking about? Well, we know now that there's a, 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 a knit, a lexicon, a fabric of families knit into what any particular region, country, as we know countries today, Nigeria, Ghana, Cameroon, uh, for example, we, we know that there's a, 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 a um, lexicon of ethnic groups, families, traditions, languages spoken just within those regions that get reduced to traditional, that get reduced to Nigeria, that get reduced to uh, even Islam, you know, has been reduced while being overgeneralized as somehow traditional to West Africa and our West African consciousness, not taking into account 
not only our movement here, which we tend to overfocus on slavery in, in the Americas, but we don't think the African American, the, the adults, we don't think about slavery from the West African perspective and how these traditions had to survive, amalgamate, syncretize for their own well-being during that same time period and ultimately leading, leading up to what you see and have today. I, I like to think about Togo, Benin, and, and the great infusion of Indian or Hindu civilism that you see now painted everywhere and, and embedded itself um, within the tradition. And we often think of this sort of appropriation and uh, syncretizing as a American or a diasporic concept, you know, singularly to the Americas. But certainly we see it uh, in the Islamic world and in, in the Far East and the Near East and the Middle East. Um, we also see sort of that same footprint being left uh, on the continent. So the same standards of historical reconstruction should apply to the study of the ATR traditions and the examination of the impact of Christian missionaries and evangelicalism and the spread of Islam. Unlike the study of traditional African religion, traditional ATR, the conversion of slaves to Christianity, such as in the Isle Reveal community, has not been the subject of extensive research. Consequently, scholarly analysis has been prone to a historical generalization. The African contribution to the spread of Christianity in the Americas has generally been overlooked. And I say it probably every day. There will be no Christianity in the Americas without the African contribution. There will be no Christianity in the Americas today without the African contribution then and certainly as it's maintained now. And as Thornton has demonstrated, some Africans from Congo and Angola were already Christian before reaching the Americas. And hence, enslaved Africans were also a factor in spreading Christianity among slaves in the Americas. Thornton's discovery indicates that the interaction between African religious tradition and Christianity was more complex than previously thought. Moreover, the context for analyzing the conversion to Christianity includes Africa as well as Europe and the Americas. Clearly, the complexities of African religious history are blurred because there has been little research done on the important topic. The possible exception is the study of Islam among slaves, where the historical context of enslavement has sometimes been identified with concurrent political developments in West Africa. Another area of analysis that is particularly fraught with the historical generalizations concerns issues relating to ethnicity. With few exceptions, the study of slavery in Cane River, Louisiana, tended to treat ethnicity as a static feature. 20th century ethnic categories in Africa are often read backwards 
to the days of slavery, thereby removing ethnic identity from its contemporary political and social context. Michael Mullen, for example, is certainly correct in noting that tribal is no longer good form, but not for reasons he supports, and certainly ethnicity is not a euphemism for tribal. The concept of ethnicity is a particularly valuable tool for unraveling the past because it is a complex phenomenon tied into very specific historical situations. I like to say family sometimes in place of ethnicity. By contrast, Gwendolyn Hall's account of Africans in colonial Louisiana traces the movement of a core group of Bambara from Africa to Louisiana, although for whatever reasons, Hall has not been able to carry her findings forward very far. What does it mean that Bambara arrived in Louisiana in the 18th century? To answer this question requires a detailed study of how the term Bambara was used in different contexts at that time not only in Louisiana, but also in other parts of the diaspora and in West Africa. And since specific ethnic identities had meaning only in relation to other ethnic categories, their importance has to be examined with reference to the boundaries that separated different families, different ethnic categories from each other, including the political, religious, ethnic dimensions of these differences and how these changed over time. And certainly historical associations with Africa were also essential features of these uh, definitions of community. And, and rather than being static, the links with Africa were seldom disconnected from events across the Atlantic. Ethnicity underwent redefinition in the Americas. On the one hand, European observers developed categories for African populations which involve problems of interpretation. The Shamba, quote-unquote Shamba, C-H-A-M-B-A, of slave accounts refers to the Concombo, K-O-N-K-O-M-B-A, Concomba, Concomba of the upper Baltic region, not the Shamba, C-H-M-B-A, of the Benu River Basin of Nigeria. Bari, Bari, G-B-A-R-I, Bari are an ethnic group referred to as Gwari, G-W-A-R-I, by House of Speakers. But Gambari is a Yoruba term for Hausa. Nago, some of us in the ATR community, particularly Lukumi and Sensei, are, are familiar with hearing Nago, is a subsection of Yoruba speakers, a subsection of Yoruba speakers, but was sometimes used as a generic term for the Yoruba. So when I speak with my elders, some living, others, may they rest in our room. When they speak of 
their initiations and they speak of Nigeria, they typically will use the term Nago. Because in, in, in the old days, it was a generic term for the Yoruba. But Nago is a subsection of Yoruba speakers. Tapa refers to the Nupe. T-A-P-A, Tapa, refers to the Nupe. And because of the amount of time that I spent in museums, I'm very familiar with many of these phrases, many of these words, much of this language uses. Because, you know, when you're looking at the mask and the sculptures and whatnot, you know, and you're seeing the location and you're seeing these the supposed ethnic group, you know, indications, it just stuck in my head, it was it's easier for me to sort of remember these labelings. These labelings had meanings that had to be deciphered in context. And so in the Sokoto Caliphate, conversation to Islam often meant becoming Hausa, which became the language of commerce and, and empire. Hence the recognition of Hausa speakers in the diaspora does not necessarily establish that these Hausa have much in common with the 20th century Hausa, since many probably were non-Hausa in their origin. They only became Hausa because they had to use it in business, in commerce. Much like many people are now using English, though they're not English, no, they're not. They're not from Britain. They're not from London. They have. We have no connection to it. But we speak the language. We use the the, the money in some cases. You know, now it's American. So as opposed to English, it, it should be. Um, we speak American. You know, and people speak American all over the world. People dress American all over the world. People spend American money, in some cases, all over the world. Well, well, used to dollar ain't worth anything now. And so the imposition of European labels for African populations further compounds the problem, since these were not necessarily the names used by enslaved Africans for themselves. And as a study of context, as, I'm sorry, as a study of ethnicity in Africa has demonstrated clearly ethnic identities and can only be understood in context of the time present ethnic categories cannot be applied backwards in time any more than present religious practices can be. Ethnicity, religion, and culture of the enslaved populations kept changing. Before the abolition of the, of the transatlantic trade in enslaved Africans, new slaves were constantly arriving in their by infusing slave communities with new information and ideas which had to be assimilated in ways that we do not always understand today. And the movements of former slaves, both before British abolition and especially afterwards, continued these contacts. Being Nago in Bahia, in the early 19th century was not the same as being Yoruba in West Africa. But uncovering the difference and what was meant by these labels at the time is a major task. 
whose undertaking must inform any analysis of the slave condition. And it's why I say in my own initiations, in my own journey, in my own walk, I was exposed to many traditions. I was exposed to many elders. I was exposed to many paths. And I reached the point of my own inner standing, taking the information that I had taught, that I had been seen, that I had experienced, that I, had, that I witnessed what I thought I knew, and I have reached a crossroads of inner standing. How much Yoruba am I really if I'm going to continue to further invest money, time, travel, gaining access to a passport, going back and forth to Oyo or Oshogbo or, or, or some point? Um, how much Yoruba am I really? And, and am I just putting on a, a coat? if you will, of Europe, but just like people all over the world put on a coat of what's American, when it suits them, when it fits them, when it benefits them, you know, when it's good for them to do so. So we can't, you know, we can debate it, but we can't negate our ancestors' um, commitment to resistance to not only slavery, um, but to uh, melting down who they were as, as Africans. And so that constant information from new communities, new contexts, uh, would you know become a part of a person's gumbo pot, much like we do today. We, we learn a little bit about meditation. We learn a little bit about sage. We learn a little about Orishas, you know, because we're trying to following in the footsteps, not trying. We are following in the footsteps of our ancestors, still trying to put those bricks into place of our own tower, of our own body temple, if you will, of being African and trying to maintain that uh, in a playing field, in a world that's constantly in motion while our lives are constantly in motion, while the politics and the dynamics of not just, you know, how we perceive uh, at what African is in the diaspora is in motion, but what African is in Africa is constantly, presently in motion. So while the African dimension has sometimes been emphasized in the analysis of slave resistance, in the Americas, the study of resistance is too often divorced from a study of the abolition movement. The emphasis on African history that is being advocated here suggests that the two subjects should be treated together. The preliminary work on the ethnic component in the slave resistance should now be supplemented with an investigation of the role that Africans played in the abolition movement and the spread of anti-slavery doctrines. Once more, the issue of agency and the African background are paramount. Resistance and abolition must be reexamined in the light of the additional research being conducted in Africa and after renewed consideration of the methodology issues arising from the interpretation of new data. The study of 
the African component of slavery. I'm sorry, the study of the African component of slave resistance may appear to be the exception to the general state of slave studies, which has tended to pay more attention to the European influences on the Americas rather than the continuities with African history. Palmares is identified as an African kingdom in Brazil. And, and, and we give praise and honor to the Maroons of Brazil. Uh, we acknowledge Nanny of Maroons. We acknowledge Jamaica. We, we, we acknowledge certain other pockets of our own community. But certainly, uh, Palmares has sort of risen, you know, if you will, to the in the ranks of our attention for maroon leadership subsequently leading to what we consider an African kingdom in Brazil. An early and important example of Quilombos and Polenques of Latin America, which also often reveal a strong African link. And in Jamaica, enslaved Akan are identified with Maroonage rebellion. They are considered responsible for setting the course of cultural development among the Maroons. And where is our footprint here in North America? Where is our footprint? Where is our African kingdom established by Maroonage? We don't give that acknowledgement. Many people aren't even aware of the Maroonage here in North America. And despite the identification of the ethnic factor, however, most studies of slave resistance fail to examine the historical context in Africa from which these rebellious slaves came from. Whether or not there were distinct links or informal influences that shaped specific acts of resistance simply has not been determined in most cases. Because the African background has been poorly understood, perhaps scholars have tended to concentrate on the European influences which shaped the agenda of slave resistance. Eugene um, Genovese, G-E-N-O-V-E-S-E, Genovese, for example, has argued that there was a fundamental shift in the patterns of resistance by slaves at the end of the 18th century, which he correlated with the French Revolution and the destruction of slavery in Saint-Domingue, which became Haiti and, and, um, um, Saint -Domingue and Dominican Republic. And often, the, again, the focus on resistance has generally been in that region. And before the 1790s, according to Genovese, slave resistance tended to draw inspiration from the African past. But the content of that past remains obscure in his vision. With the spread of revolutionary doctrines in Europe and the Americas, slaves acquired elements of a new ideology that reinforced their resistance to slavery, including the Bible, which became a strong tool for many 
um, in developing uh, revolutionary thinking and ideas, but certainly uh, in developing um, a foundation, a grounding foundation for resistance to slavery, again, through Western or European eyes. They were trying to appeal to the European eyes. The process of creolization, which introduced slaves to European thought, brought the actions of slaves more into line with the revolutionary movement emanating from Europe. Genovese's interpretation further highlights the problem of identifying the impact of African history on the development of the diaspora. Scholars who are not well-versed in African history seem to have a cloudy image of the African contribution to resistance and the evolution of slave culture. Perhaps it is to be expected, therefore, that the European influence is easier to recognize than the African influence. But for Genovese, following the earlier lead of C.L.R. James, the French Revolution had such an obvious impact on the San Dominique uprising that the African dimension is not relevant. As Thornton has demonstrated, however, even the uprising in St. Dominique had its African antecedents, especially the legacy of the Congo Civil War. Moreover, influences from Africa remained a strong force in the struggle against slavery well after the 1790s, especially in Brazil and Cuba where there was a continuous infusion of new slaves from Africa, often from places where slaves had been coming from some time. The complex blending of African and European experiences undoubtedly changed over time, but until African history is studied in the diaspora, it will be difficult to weigh the relative importance of the European and African traditions. And certainly in the Americas, Congo Civil War influence is generally overlooked if if uh, examined at all in terms of maroonage and slave resistance here in the American South during the late 1700s, certainly the 1790s. And considering the level of literacy among the enslaved, Cane River, Louisiana community, and the political and religious origins of their enslavement, it is perhaps not surprising that events in CoinCoin's life had a strong component of African history. While additional data needs to be collected, the preliminary profile only include names of individual family members, their religion, the approximate date of their enslavement, which I have read from the list here on my podcast many times in previous uh, episodes, and the approximate age at time of enslavement, the method of enslavement, the route to the coast for exports, and ethnic geographic designations of origin. The transition in the patterns of resistance, which eventually merged African and European in Cane River, Louisiana, historical experiences 
ultimately resulted in a movement to abolish slavery itself. The reason for this fundamental development arose directly out of the condition of slaves. Whereas in Africa, slavery, pawnship, and other forms of social oppression had been common. There is no evidence of widespread oppression in these institutions. And that's a big argument that some people like to make, that, well, we sold each other into slavery. But, but, but it's hard, you'd be hard-pressed to find any widespread oppression within the dynamics of those West African institutions. And opposition to slavery in Africa was largely confined to the individual actions of disgruntled slaves. The fact that some slaves were exported to Louisiana because masters found them difficult to control or manage indicates that the resistance to slavery was to be found in Africa. And efforts to redeem family members and to ransom prisoners from bondage sometimes checked abuses. And flight from slavery was common in some parts of Africa. Despite acts of resistance that can be traced back to Africa, abolitionist ideas do not seem to have been formulated among slaves before they reached the Americas. The further um, derisination accompanying the ocean voyage and the humiliation of racial stereotyping that followed in the Americas fundamentally altered the perception of slavery and as an institution for many slaves. Individuals who had previously not been noted as opponents of slavery, as such now had to struggle against their bonds in the Americas to the point that many became firm opponents of the institution. So even if these, you know, supposed uh, wealthy uh, African families who warred with other ethnic groups and sold those children into enslavement, now found themselves in, in the predicament of slavery and uh, for obvious reasons, not only became opponents to their own enslavement, but to, but to that of others. And subsequently the structural institutions of slavery as they had existed in West Africa. And remember, we're talking about the West Africans and the West African mindset who now find themselves in the belly of the beast, who are now actively feeding slave resistance here in America. And so individually, so individuals who had previously not been noted as opponents of slavery as such, now had to struggle against their bonds in the Americas to the point that they became firm opponents of this slave institution. And in Americas, in the Americas, there were added dimensions to this resistance, especially reactions to the racial characteristics of chattel slavery, which did not exist in West Africa, where you had blacks selling prisoners and captured enemies into a slave system that they had already known. And so conditions of slaves in Africa emerged gradually, although the roots of racial categories were established early. 
Furthermore, slaves did not consolidate ethnic identifications on the basis of color, but it was widely understood that most blacks were slaves and no slaves were white. And although there were black, mulatto, and American-born African slave owners in some colonies in the Americas, and many whites did not own slaves, chattel slavery was fundamentally different in Louisiana from other parts of the world because of the racial dimension and color code. The association between the abolition movement and African resistance to slavery is a controversial one. Abolitionism is usually attributed to European thought, especially as expressed by Enlightenment thinkers in Britain and in northern North America. David Brion Davis and other scholars have provided useful, even insightful analysis of this phenomenon. But the premise of much of the analysis overlooks the slaves themselves. It is worth remembering that in Saint-Dominique, slaves were responsible for their own liberation, as noted above. The antecedents for their uprising can be traced to the Kingdom of Congo, as well as revolutionary France. How slaves transformed their African experiences into revolutionary action against the institution of slavery still had to be explored. Even specialists of Africa have inadvertently overlooked the importance of black abolitionist thought and action. Black abolitionist thought and action. Thus, Martin Klein writes, and I quote, there is no evidence that slavery was seriously attacked in any part of the world before the 18th century. The abolitionist movement had its origins in a change in European consciousness, unquote. And Klein attributes this change to the Enlightenment, you know, that period that we, we've known in history as the Enlightenment, thereby ignoring changes in the thinking that was taking place among the slaves and former slaves in the Americas themselves. However, as Hillary Beckles has argued, there was an indigenous anti-slavery movement, an indigenous anti-slavery movement among Africans in the Americas. That is, abolitionism was as much a black response to slavery as a European phenomenon. And, and the concentration on the abolition movement in the standard literature as a white European movement is only part of the history. It remains to be seen how Africans were subjected to slavery in the Americas transformed their ideas about slavery. Institutions of servitude, including slavery, that were acceptable in Africa and to which many Africans had been exposed even before their own enslavement were no longer acceptable in the Americas. Slavery in West Africa, in Central Africa, and among Africans 
now became a taboo thing, even among Africans now in the Americas. So, so if you're not catching on, please, beloved, understand there's a clear distinction between what we stereotypically, you know, accepted as a civil rights movement, has accepted as the abolitionist movement, and our own footprint, both before enslavement, during enslavement, but certainly after we got here on the ground, in, 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 in our own escape, is still underdocumented in the record. Oh, we know about Moses, Mama Moses. We know about Harriet Tubman, but Harriet Tubman was one of many, and she said so on that highway, you know, to freedom. And we know very little, have very little discussion of those others. And so it, it, it makes our fight for freedom almost look like an aberration, almost look like something that somebody, just, just that one person gets so fed up that they just refuse to sit down on the bus. And then we, you know, attribute her to possibly feeding a movement. And so there needs to be a greater discussion a greater analysis about the conditions of slavery in the Americas and the conditions of enslavement in Africa and how the Africans played a role in feeding our own desire for uh, freedom here. And once we consider issues of agency, identity, and community in Cane River, Louisiana, which in effect is a logical extension of this kind of research, it is clear that many slaves, such as coin coins, perceived of themselves in the historical context of their time, not only in the, in the Louisiana, but also in Africa itself, a state of being that was free. And in emphasizing the central place of Africa in the slave experience, it is important to highlight the importance of agency. While it often claimed that Coin Coin was an active participant in shaping the societies of Canyon River, Louisiana. It is being suggested that she was still an enslaved African who could not be fully appreciated as agents of her own fate, no matter how much she was freed by her so-called love relationship. Until there is greater appreciation of her life and of the experience of slaves in Africa itself, the accounts are just legends. And rather than maintain a few cultural survivors that are quaint and symbolic, like Harriet Tubman, enslaved Africans brought with them political issues and live interpretations of their own predicament, separate from what any white documentarian documentarian of that time, any white author or note taker or journalist of that time could have documented because our story, our position, our vision was not being even conceived at the time, except by us, for us, within us. And it is worth stressing that there was a cautious stream of enslaved immigration coming from Africa during periods of growth and prosperity. 
Hence, individual colonies in the Americas often received slaves from the same places in Africa, thereby updating information, rekindling memories, reinforcing the African component to the cultural adaptations under slavery. The extent to which linkages with Africa were maintained or declined into insignificance needs to be established. The ways in which enslaved Africans subsequently interpreted their conditions in the Americas and the Islamic world lies at the heart of the American contribution to the process of creolization. The forms of resistance and the extent of accommodation with the slave experience. There are, in fact, different paradigms for considering the communities of enslaved Africans than those currently being used. Besides being a slave, Coin Coin was a mother. She was part of the immigrant population, and her family were what amounted to refugees forced to migrate in different ways and certainly different than how we now view modern refugees who themselves are frequently forced to move folks like to say oh well you know they came by choice they're looking for a better life you know they they, they want better they were forced to move and like immigrant communities and refugees and other times and other places enslaved africans identify with communities which maintain links with their countries of origin in a variety of indigenous ways, ingenious ways. Enslaved Muslims in Bahia, for example, considered themselves as being, uh, as belonging to the world of Islam and their educational system and common prayers were active attempts to maintain and extend that world even though they were physically living and existing here in the Americas under this this system. And based on preliminary research, it is important, it is apparent that there needs to be extensive documentation on the Africanness of coin coin, but there is an additional problem facing researchers. First, the material is widely scattered, as in the case of coin coin, at least 10 different countries. Second, analysis of this material requires a thorough knowledge of African history for specifically Togoland and specific periods, which is not easy to acquire by non-specialists. Third, Analysis also necessitates a full understanding of the different parts of the diaspora, which is just as difficult to acquire as the knowledge of Coin Coin in Cane River, Louisiana. Fourth, there is the problem of language. Portuguese, French, English, Spanish, airway dialect. I mean, you hear me just dealing with the dyslexia of the accents just trying to get the material out to you. 
because it's in Portuguese, it's in French, it's in English, it's in Spanish, it's in airway, and it's in the vernacular of the day often, vernacular of the time, uh, referencing something that typically we associate with being, again, traditional, quote-unquote traditional, or historic to West Africa, which was also in flux, in motion, and changing at the time. And this type of work can only be done through extensive international collaboration among scholars um, for which uh, Matoya, uh, her siblings, uh, her husband, um, and, of course, the Creole Heritage Center um, continue to move forward. As a guideline for future research, they are proposing that information that is often being passed over for one of significance to researchers needs to be reexamined. And specifically, um, biographical data needs to be gathered, correlated, compared, analyzed with the assistance of specialists who know the history of the time period and area for which individual slaves came to America. These biographical uh, data are far too extensive for individual scholars to to collect. Uh, Although it is scattered and may not appear to be numerous enough to be significant in the context of other research, only through a massive international collaborative effort will it be possible to harvest this abundant research. And equally important, the details of cultural survivor, specifically coin coin family, names, attributes of culture, kinship relationships, religious observances, etc., must be correlated in situ. That is the exact wording of reference with full supporting context has to be recorded so that specialists of African history can have the opportunity to debate the possible meaning of the data. Oral source material is also essential. The extent of such data is not even known. And many data has been collected scientifically by scholars, but other data has been preserved haphazardly by contemporary observers and the descendants of Creoles of Cane River, Louisiana. And because of the methodological difficulties in collecting and examining these materials, the effort at analyzing must again be collaborative and involve African Africanist specialists as well as the actual collectors and the researchers of Creole culture in Cane River, Louisiana, who have uncovered and who are uh, re-examining such materials. So the importance of understanding uh, not only our experience, you know, under white supremacy, white supremacy and enslavement here in America, but also that of our ancestors, of our experience by way of our ancestors, as of the time must be examined fully and truly real insight onto 
the authenticity of, of Louisiana voodoo, the authenticity of Mississippi Delta uh, voodoo, and the birthing of conjure root work, um, and, and certainly um, all the branches of our traditions that continue to survive, even into 2022. Greetings, Moonstone, Shadow Wolf. Always glad to see you and yours. Uh, uh, beloved, uh, Yanisia, um please forgive me. I've been talking for an hour and 36 minutes. <laughs> And this uh, this topic, not this show, but this topic uh, really began last episode with the discussion and the examination of coin coin, uh, uh, the grace of coin coin, the role of an African woman spirituality and its impact on Creole culture. Understanding that coin coin as a, an enslaved African who subsequently became a free person of color who owned slaves, who freed or emalumated slaves, gave them their freedom papers, if you will, starting with her own family. Um, she was a product of 11. She had 10 siblings and so she, she was a product of 11, and then she had 10 children, I believe. I may be saying that in reverse. It might have been 10 children. She was a product of 10 children, I believe the fourth of 10 children, and then went on to have 11 children herself um, and, and is credited with sort of being uh, the matriarch, if you will, of Creole culture here in the Americas, uh, Louisiana. And that then subsequently feeds uh, our experience and understanding of voodoo, hoodoo, conjure, root work, having its West African, Central African, its African root, and and the and the realistic um, footprint of that. That's what we're talking about. That's why we're talking about it. Uh, that's why uh, I can have continued the story, certainly with the uh, support and coaching of, of many of the people actually in the audience who understand why I'm covering this material. Uh, many go back and listen and re-listen and archive and like to do their research and like to do their homework and like to look up these names, location, people, places, and things uh, as I mentioned them. But uh, Patricia Heiser Matoyer, Ph.D., and her husband, Luke Matoyer Sr., um, compiled this data, compiled this information um, some 20 years ago or more for Northwestern State University of Louisiana, Tulane University, and the Creole Heritage Center. And so that's what we've been discussing uh, uh, this episode and, and the last episode, and certainly it feeds future discussions in coming episodes um, about the legitimacy of our practice, um, the idea that, you know, uh, and, and, and let me be clear, I'm not disparaging any path. Certainly, we are siblings, we are cousins in some cases, 
we are just, you know, separated by these artificial political boundaries. We are separated by um, serious geographical boundaries in many cases, and certainly we are uh, separated in time, in space from our, you know, not just our arrival here in America, but just the arrival of the idea of enslaving people, uh, whether it's in its West African context or its, you know, Eurocentric context. But how the idea, you know, even originated that then subsequently ended us all where we are today. And so it's why I, in some shows, cover it from a historical perspective. In some shows, I cover it more from a, a, a metaphysical and quantum metaphysical perspective. Uh, sometimes I just tell my story. And, and in many of the upcoming episodes, I will be just telling my story. Uh, but, you know, people want to understand where and how and, and the why and and, and how I acquired it and, and how I gained access to it. And so, yes, I'm, I'm almost 60 years old. I'm halfway to 60. Uh, I, my beloved mother's still with us, almost 80 years old. Uh, she'll be 80 this year. Um, many elders in my family talk, share, discuss. Uh, certainly uh, my long-term audience knows that, I, you know, I was a teenage runaway. I was out there in the world at 14 giving me the opportunity to meet many elders in the tradition of, of various ethnic backgrounds, which gave me my education and entryway into a great deal of this information. And a great deal of this information was not compiled 40 years ago, 30 years ago, 20 years ago, 15 years ago, um, in the way that we now see it being compiled in, in books and, and now in video and, and documentary and, and other forms, it has continued to move uh, as we've continued to move, uh, but also with the technology and with the availability of, of resources and technology. And so, you know, you, you're liable to walk into this classroom and I might be discussing anything. Uh, what I don't discuss, you know, is magic spells and you know, how to root a man and uh, how to keep your enemies quiet. And, you know, you know, you can just turn the channel. <laughs> there are other channels that, that are glad to disperse what they believe to be, you know, authentic information, you know, in, in that realm. So I believe it's best to keep what's of value sacred. And I spend my two hours here or my hour here with, with you and with my community sharing why it's sacred, sharing where it came from, sharing how the sacred made its way here, sharing why it's legitimate for the children of the diaspora, particularly born unto the soil of America, have just as much right and authority and lineage to these traditions as any Cuban, as any Puerto Rican, as any Brazilian, as any Venezuelan, as any West African. We just are now in a time and space where we can stand up in our truth, where we can stand up in our tradition. And so this is another attempt to coach 
our people into what's more aligned with our best interests and to make it make sense. We live in a time space today where people want things to make sense. Now, making sense sometimes means you got to read the small print in the label. I mean, when's the last time you bought a, you know, a bottle of paint label? And, and it's got that outside label, and, and now you got to peel it back, and it's got that inside. You know, that didn't exist in 1970, y'all. I'm trying to tell you. That didn't exist in the 1970s. All these extra precautions and warnings and details, and ingred- that did not exist in 75. That did not exist barely in 1980. Did not exist really that much in 1984 when I graduated high school. I think the Tylenol scandal came right after that, where, where they were concerned that you know, Tylenol was poison and was killing people. So my point is our need for, our desire for, our overwhelming access to information has changed and has evolved over time. And so we certainly can Google it, Bing it, research it, study it, but it's just not the same thing as hands-on experience. It's just not the same thing. And I've been told by more than one visitor, with all due respect, Divine Prince, what you think you're doing online, what you think you're showing online, what you think you're giving people online ain't nothing. And of course, I I clutched my pearl. (gasps) What? What you saying to me to my face? And then he, because it was a he, he went into great, he said, no, 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 no. People can't see you. We think that virtually, you know, we're exposing ourselves. Virtually, we're being naked. Virtually, you know, we keep it at 100. He said, people are not seeing it until they get on the ground, until they get to New Orleans, until they experience that Congo Square experience for themselves, until they see this house, this this huge voodoo house, legitimate operating voodoo house, and we get down, and we have ceremony, we have ritual, and we initiate, and we cleanse, and we battle, and we bind. Oh, do we battle? <laughs> Every bind, you know, in a real legitimate space. And so my vision for my people is that we see our best image in the mirror. We see our best reflection in the mirrors, and we believe that image to be real, and we believe that image to be attainable, and we become more of that in 2023, in 2024, in 2025. We become more of who we are and not less of in in this space of illusions and mirrors and, and masks. Masks have their purpose. Branding has its purpose. Symbolism has its purpose. Taglines and and trademarks have their purpose. But at some point, we want to know, well, who the owner of that? Who made that? What's their purpose? What's their motivation? What's their meaning? And so in our journey of self, in my own journey of self, I've had to go through my pain. I've had to go through my shadow work. I've had to go through my broken childhood. I had to go through years of being homeless as a teenager, a young teenager, older teenager, and in my 20s, into my early 30s, still shuffling from place to place. 
I had to do my own homework, beloved. And in so doing, I, I had to also learn some math and learn some science and learn some chemistry and learn some mineralogy and, and, and yes, learn some history and tradition and, and culture about what makes who and what we already are legitimate. I'm good just as I am. I'm perfect just as I'm made. We are because our creators are. We are because the most high is. And my mother is the black woman is God. My mother is the black woman is God. And so we explore every facet of the universe understanding that my mother gave birth to this universe. My mother gave birth to this spirit. My mother gave birth to this science, this math, these categories of, of, of demarcation and, and explanation that we now sometimes quarrel over as it relates to really getting in touch with spirit from a more aboriginal, more indigenous perspective. So, yes, we must know from where we came. We must know from where we originated. We must fully understand our journey, in particular our most recent time along this journey and how it plays a role in who and what we are and what we demonstrate today. I honor you and yours for spending time with me regularly, routinely, sometimes inconsistently, but you all always seem to somehow be here. You all always seem to somehow show up, uh, and it makes me emotional. <laughs> I try to feed you. I try to gift to you what's been given to me, but I also try to feed you and gift you what I believe is sacred and will carry us forward into the future. Not just the present, but into a future. And we must be able to see and understand the future. A man without a plan is always subject to someone else's plan. So we must have a vision of a future. And I don't just mean heaven. I don't just mean the great by and by. I mean tomorrow. I mean, 15 minutes from now, some of you already know what you got planned for lunch, for dinner, for breakfast. Some of you already know what you got planned to wear. Some of you already have planned your route. So it's just another examination of our reality, beloved. It's just another examination of our present, looking into a better future. And I'm grateful. I'm eternally grateful. This is revolutionary hoodoo, New Orleans hoodoo secrets and recipes. This is my experience. I am hoodoo chief, the divine prince, authentic, authentic hoodoo, New Orleans voodoo, obeya, bokor. Um, I have a job to do. Sometimes I'm uncertain about my demonstration. 
Should I be more entertaining? Should I be more visible? Should I be less visible? Uh, and, and some of you have noticed I've kind of gone back to my original blog talk radio platform in terms of my style. Um, and people like it. I do what I do based on feedback. People like it. They don't want to hear debate. They don't want to hear arguing. They don't want to hear me going back and forth with somebody about who's more or less authentic than the other. They want the facts. They want the details. They want to be able to search it, research it, understand it, and make it sense, make it make sense. And then it is here on the ground. And then, of course, virtually using our technology that we interact as often as we can as a community. So I'm grateful for you and yours. I am going to move forward, understanding that all is truly and indeed a blessing if you can just see beyond the veil. It is all just an illusion and a test and one of the greatest divine mysteries of this life cycle. of evolutionary, revolutionary hoodoo, New Orleans voodoo secrets and recipes. All is truly and indeed a blessing. Ashe, ashe, oh, ashe. A dash of cayenne to the root Gonna put on my Greek grease suit Boil a gumbo Hot and steady Don't care if Freddy ready Gonna pray at that old cemetery Down on Claiborne where she's buried Fire on the bayou When a black cat scratched at two Under a full moon that's blue Chant some magic words, Kufaru A dash of cayenne to the rule Gonna put on my Greek grease suit Black top hat, black suit too 
single ride that Moses threw. I'm going to get them bones out the graveyard for you. Can't see my eyes like the shades do. A dash of cayenne to the roof. Gonna put on my green, green suit. Yeah. Black top hat, black suit too. Same old ride that Moses threw. I'm gonna get them bones out the graveyard for you. Can't see my eyes, black shades too. Going free at the old cemetery. Down on Claybone where she's buried. A dash of cayenne to the roof. Gonna put on my Greek grease. Black top hat, black suit too, same old ride that Moses threw. I'm gonna get them balls out the graveyard for you. Can't see my eyes, black sheets too. Gonna pray at that old cemetery, down on Claybone where she's buried. A dash of cayenne to the room. Gonna put on my green, green suit.